Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. and welcome to Paradise Island. This is Under Consultation, a huge episode-by-episode podcast guide through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, and I'm a vegetarian, therefore not liked by Martin Mathers. And I am Ash Versus, and I'm siding with Martin Mathers. Luke, vegetarians are not nice people. This episode aired on the 20th of January 1998 and FIFA 98 once again holds to the top of the video game charts. Appearing on Games Master pays off for All Saints as they top the pops with Never Ever, but with a new number one at the top of the box office. It's Devil's Advocates. A young attorney has the chance of a lifetime. Milton Chadwick Waters. We want you to come to New York. All expenses, first class, travel and lodging, you and your wife. Oh my god. He will enter a place of wealth and ambition. We've got 40 partners vested at the moment. In addition to our corporate clients, we're currently representing about 25 foreign countries. He's got you scheduled for 15 minutes, so make the most of it. John Milton. Kevin Lomax. Well, what's that like? One day you're putting them away, next day you're setting them free. Takes a little getting used to. Pays better though, doesn't it? Welcome to Babylon, Ma. Speak of the death. <laughs> a world of power and seduction. Who's that with the senator? Controlled by one man. I swear he can hear us. Hell, he can smell us. He will make your dreams come true. Wanna come upstairs and... Now? <laughs> he will grant your fondest wish. I'm just warming my hands on your talent. You know what I see? I see the future of this law firm. He knows your greatest fear. Milton is into everything. Arms brokering, chemical weapons, toxic waste, money laundering for the Eastern Bloc. I mean, it goes on and on. I don't like it here, Kevin. And he knows the price of your soul. Let's make a play. Who are you? Oh, I have 
have so many names. A supernatural horror film at the top of the box office. We have not had a number one horror film for a long, long time. I mean, was it a Freddy film? Was the last oh, God, proper was it Hellraiser? Because because Freddy's Dead would have been like series one. Yeah, Hellraiser was series two or three. I want to say it's series two. I mean, I will say there have been other horror number ones in that time period, just not within our core timeline, yeah. our season. And I think this one is almost a stealth horror movie because while it is very much a supernatural horror movie, it's got quite a cast. You've got Pacino, Theron, Reeves. It's not your typical horror cast. I've got a bit of a love for Devil's Advocate because I don't think it's a good movie, but it's a great movie for actors chewing all sorts of scenery pacino in particular is on fine form in this movie uh there's a moment in this movie that actually gets quoted around our office quite a bit and always gets brought to the forefront whenever the movie gets like brought up or anything or anyone talks about pacino because if you don't know the movie pacino is the devil and he is also a lawyer because lawyers are devils just want to say in the wikipedia entry the paragraph says Pacino's character, comma, Satan, comma. <laughs> yeah, he, he is very much the devil. But Keanu Reeves walks into his apartment. He notices that he doesn't have a bed. And so he asks a very simple question. Where does he sleep? Who says he sleeps? Where does he fuck? Everywhere. <laughs> Everywhere. <laughs> and it's incredible. It's not obviously like Pete Pacino is still like she's got a great ass. You got your head all the way up it. It's not quite that Pacino, but it is like on that level of Pacino acting, and I, that's my favourite Pacino. It didn't do so well with the critics, but I mean it's number one here. It grossed over 150 mil at the box office and did win a Saturn Award for best horror movie. That doesn't necessarily mean that it was a great horror movie. It just means that pickings were slim for that particular time period. I mean, there's, there's Scream 2 still at that point. So that, yeah, but it's a sequel. It and is the, the Saturn sequel. Awards, the Saturn Awards, they're yeah. a little bit up their own bum. Yeah, I was going to say, I think like if you're trying to not pick just a, a traditional slasher movie, I guess, because you would have had uh, I Know What You Did Last Summer. I think that makes sense. And also, I think it's it certainly would have done box office receipts cast alone. Because it's Pacino, it's Keanu Reeves. And I think you could certainly make the argument that that makes sense for Keanu Reeves now because we've already had the Reeves, the Reeves naissance uh, following John Wick and people now starting to take Keanu Reeves seriously as an actor. But we are kind of almost nearing the end point of the first batch of us taking Keanu Reeves seriously as an actor because he's not going to get taken seriously as an actor certainly after the first Matrix movie up until probably John Wick because everyone's just like, oh no, Keanu Reeves, he was bad in every movie. This movie took a long time to get to the screen, because it was based on a book that was published in 1990, and from the moment it was published, it was being shopped around Hollywood. There were a lot of different screenplays that were being shopped around, including one that was attached to Joel Schumacher, who was planning to direct a young Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt's an interesting choice in there as well, um, and, and and it certainly makes sense at the time. I think like I, I think Schumacher's style would have fit with the tone of the movie, at least the you know the tone of the movie we eventually get because it's it is quite camp, and I think that Joel Schumacher would have just upped the campness on it. 
Yeah, I mean, he did have plans for a sequence where Pitt would go into the New York subway system, which would be modelled on the circles of hell from Dante's Divine Comedy, which means that Brad Pitt would just be in the New York subway system. Yeah, I, I don't know why it ended up not getting made the way that it did. All I can tell you is that I'm glad we got the movie that we eventually did do, because I, I think this movie is a glorious glorious scenery-chewing mess, which is, and it is a lot of fun. I think it's got a a hell of an ending to it. Some real, like, bizarre twists and turns uh, in sort of, like, the final third of the movie that are both brilliant and shit. I have not watched it in a long time, so I actually can't remember a lot of the twists. But, you know, I checked out Starship Troopers. We're approaching the end of the series and maybe I'll try and check this one out because I do like a... Let's put good in Bucky O'Hare's psychological horror. I do like Pacino and I, I do like things set around New York. New York's a great city. This is what I would call a perfect How Did This Get Made movie. Uh, if anyone is a fan of that podcast, you will probably remember the episode that they did on this. I think it is a perfect episode for How Did This Get Made um, because it is wacky and it is bonkers and it's a bit nuts. I think you'll get a hell of a kick out of it as well. Plus, like if you get to watch it between like now and the end, we've got two weeks of Titanic after this. So you may be able to talk about it a little bit then. Maybe so. On the role of the devil himself, Pacino actually turned down the role three times. He did. He turned this down a lot of times. And tried to give it to other people. Yeah. Robert Redford as Satan? Mm, don't know if he's got the chops. Sean Connery as Satan? No. No, Sean Connery is not right for this role. I mean, Keanu Reeves definitely made the smart choice with this film because he chose to star in this over Speed 2. Yeah, and I, I think his decision not to do Speed 2 is is hilarious in the, the final product you get for Speed 2 because you just get a new actor that comes in that is Keanu Reeves' character from the first one, but just with a different name. And that's, that's yeah. actually really funny. It's just like, oh no, Sandra Bullock's fallen in love with this other Daredevil cop. Called Rianu Keeps. Exactly. But yeah, he took this role instead and agreed to a pay cut so they could meet Pacino's relatively ludicrous pay demands. We've kind of already discussed Never Ever because we had All Saints as contestants on uh, the other day. I did remember though, I went to check back through the book. We said that they were doing something like Live and Kicking. I can confirm it was the big breakfast that they were hosting and they were tired from getting up that morning to do the big breakfast and then Dominic Diamond told them we get more viewing figures and that's what turned them around on that. So just a slight correction on something I said on a previous episode. But other bits of TV news that we do have on January 24th, ITV airs the first episode of Ice Warriors. Who would dare take on Rex the Destroyer? Rex is king of this game. The faster you go, the harder you fall. That's what the crowd loves. Once you slow down, I catch you. Does it hurt when it hits you? What do you think? But they'll give it a try tonight at 5.55 on ITV, Ice Warriors. A spin-off from Gladiators that was not as successful and only aired for nine episodes. There's something in my head that's saying, I remember this because it it is basically all Gladiators events, but on ice. On ice. I must have watched this. I'm 99% certain I watched this for all nine episodes. ITV were looking for their next big mixed media light entertainment kind of juggernaut. I suppose naturally, like most forms of entertainment, you go, what if, but on ice? 
Yeah, and I think that probably since they hit Gladiators, they, I think they're still looking for that that next version of Gladiators. Like even when a few years back when they had WOS Wrestling on, I think they were like, well, cool, this will be like Gladiators. We'll shoot this like Gladiators because we're looking for the next Gladiators. Much in the same way that Sony, since 1984, have been looking for the next Ghostbusters, uh, ITV have always been looking for the next Gladiators. Turns out the Ghostbusters that they needed was the Ghostbusters that they had all along. And ITV have lost that Gladiators, first to Sky and now to the BBC, with a new series in production. And I believe I know one of the Gladiators, which is quite weird. And lastly, from the TV news, and this is a bit of a, a, a one I remember very, very vividly. January 26th, Hayley Patterson, British Soap's first transgender character, debuts on Coronation Street. I really feel we're, we're, we're getting to know each other tonight. Don't you? I do, Roy. That means a great deal to me. Uh, should we take coffee upstairs in my flat? Uh, Make ourselves comfortable. I'm sorry, Roy. I've said something I shouldn't. No, no. It's me. I've not said something I should. And I'm afraid it's something quite big. And I don't know how you're going to take it. Why? What? what? But I want you to know first that however much I've loved your company, I will understand if you don't want to see me again. Nothing would make me not want to see you again, Hayley. This might. Why? What is it? Well, it's something to do with my past. Your past? Several years past now, but... What? I'm a transsexual. I mean, I'm not a female by birth, Roy, but by choice. I'm going to avoid getting too political at the moment, but what I'm just going to say is it's amazing that we seem to have gone so far f***ing backwards since the mid to late 90s in some ways. Yeah. I mean, ITV, with Coronation Street, they were trying to really push boundaries, but Bucky O'Hare is, because they had the first gay kiss on, on Coronation Street, I think like a couple of years prior to this, might have been just the year prior, might have even come after this. But she survived the show for ages. 2014, she eventually left the show when she was killed off. It's so weird because ITV was doing this stuff, not in like a thought to progress society or acceptance they were doing it for ratings they were doing it for shock value anger the daily mail anger the daily mail i mean to be honest if you're angering the daily mail you're doing something right with your life in general but you know what uh, that's another topic for another day and for a you know perhaps a more grown-up podcast that doesn't feature a baywatch gag at the start of an episode so ash let us know what's going on in the magazine well last week while we were just going over the magazine before we started recording and I was just looking at what to bring up, I saw an article here entitled PlayStation Killer Project X to Challenge Sony and Nintendo. And I thought, well, that's a bit interesting because it's ringing a bell, but I needed to go off and do some digging. But here's what the article says. Just when it seemed that Sony and Nintendo were going to carve up the video gaming world between themselves, with Sega helping themselves to the leftovers with the Jural Project, Stories of a new console are starting to reach GM Towers. The machine, which is nicknamed Project X at the moment, has been developed by a small company called VM Labs, but they've signed up some huge electronics giants to sort out the production side of things. This is sounding very 3DO so far. Mm -hmm. Although no names are being mentioned yet, the machine is rumoured to be ready to roll late next year and should arrive before any of the big three's next machines. The tech details about the machine are being kept top secret, but the team that are involved were a real dream team of video games hardware development. 
most of the engineers spent their early years working at Atari, as well as 3DO, Apple, and Sinclair. If you needed any more convincing about the potential of this machine, two of Sony's top people have jumped ship to join the fledgling outfit. Also, gaming guru Jeff Minter, the man behind some of the greatest games of all time, is at this moment working on software development and has already posted a few screenshots and running demos on his website. Mm. Although all they really do is underline his obsession with swirly lights and Flossy the Sheep, the machine is more powerful than the existing 32- or 64-bit hardware and has graphics capability that has never ever been seen before. But that is all that VM Labs are prepared to divulge at this moment. Other developers already have Project X development kits and are hard at work creating games to be ready for the machine's launch in 1998. So could we be seeing the end of the big three? Is someone about to come from nowhere and knock Sony off the top of the tree? I mean, the answer is no. No, I, I think the, most people who were around at this time will not remember a Project X uh, and a, a fourth console on the market in, in that particular generation. I just like while you were sort of talking then and I was listening, I just had a quick Google and there was quite a few websites that are talking about this and where it ended up. I think it's a fascinating little graveyard for it, effectively. I mean, it did get released it didn't get released exactly when they said it didn't get released until the year 2000 but when it came out it was known as the Nuon. n-u-o-n Nuon transforms any television into a state-of-the-art interactive entertainment center a Nuon enhanced dvd player is performance charged providing new and improved features that make the movie viewing experience more exciting and engaging Powerful graphic interfaces make it easy for anyone to use. A Nuon Enhanced DVD player unlocks a variety of DVD bonus features currently available only on PCs with DVD ROM drives. And the fun doesn't stop there. The best software makers from around the world recognize the limitless possibilities of an advanced game platform capable of sophisticated graphics and incredible special effects. Add internet connectivity and a diverse collection of add-on peripherals, and the Nuon Enhanced DVD player transcends the role of just a movie player and becomes a total interactive entertainment system for the whole family. Uh, Samsung were one of the main people putting it out. Toshiba did as well, and RCA, particularly in America. But when they were released, it was essentially a consumer DVD player with gaming capability. And I find that insanely interesting because when you look at why the PS2 did as well as it did, it's the fact it had that DVD playback capability built in. I mean, don't get me wrong, amazing library of games. But when it came to parents buying one for the house, it's so they could watch their new DVD of Riverdance or Titanic or whatever else movie. I really do think that the PlayStation really helped the DVD boom of the 2000s. It was a lot of people's first DVD player. Despite how expensive it was, it was almost an affordable DVD player. Certainly compared to the early cost of DVD players. Yeah. It did have a number of third-party peripherals, including a Logitech gamepad. And not only were there a number of games released, and by a number, I mean eight, some movies were released with Nuon enhanced editions, including Bedazzled, the 2000 remake, Planet of the Apes, the 2001 remake, Doctor Doolittle 2, and, in the one that does pique my interest, The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. What an odd choice that is as a fourth entry in there. 
Everything else is pretty much a new movie, with the exception of odd little cult movie Buckaroo Banzai. They were like, this, this, 20th Century Fox were just like, this is what's going to bring it home to roost. We're going to put one of the most obscure movies of the 80s out there. We're going to put Buckaroo Banzai out there, and all the fans of Buckaroo Banzai will buy new on players just to get these special features. And the thing is, they were probably right, but there's a reason Buckaroo Banzai is a cult movie. Small audience. I mean, I love it. I've owned mm. it multiple times across multiple formats. But it puts it way, if I'm going to show someone a choice cult movie from my collection, Buckaroo Banzai is down the list because it's it's weird with a capital we. Mm-hmm. Like if you're on board for it, it's great. But you can usually tell within the first five minutes if someone's going to latch on to this movie. And if they're not, then just go and pick something else. Go and yeah. pick like the remake of The Blob or The Stuff or some other kind of slightly odd 80s, 90s genre movie. But there were also eight games, uh, including Crayon Shin-Chan 3, which only came out in Korea. The next Tetris, Jalux, only available on Toshiba players. Ballistic, only available with Samsung players. We're seeing, I think, part of the problem here in that you create an open standard and then certain publishers go, no, my game can't have. Iron Soldier 3, which was actually recalled because it didn't work with all the players. Space Invaders, XL, Freefall 3050 AD, Merlin Racing, and because Jeff Minter was attached to the project, Tempest 3000. And of those games, like... Tempest is probably the only one, come in the same way with the Jaguar, probably the only one that's going to stand up because off the bat, and this is something that um, the Gamecom has as a problem as well, so many of the games you're releasing are just bog standard games that aren't going to hold up to the games that are out there. Like, you know, releasing Space Invaders is not going to hold up to Metal Gear Solid. It, It isn't. No. The one, I guess, minor advantage of a new on player is even on non-enhanced DVDs, it could do some things that other DVD players couldn't. Like, do you remember on DVD players, we used to be able to zoom the image and it was like, click, mm-hmm. click, click. New ones could go, zoom. They could do the smooth pan in. When you went forward, if you went in slow motion, they smoothed the motion as well. So it wasn't juddery step by step. And they were basically just using the extra hardware that was there for the gaming to kind of accelerate that functionality. So it's kind of cool. And it's kind of weird that you had the 3DO being that idea of an open standard or the CDI before the 3DO. And the CDI, despite having the best graphics you'll ever see, fell over. It's got the best graphics you've ever seen in your life. The 3DO fell over. The M2 abandoned. And yet someone was still trying to do this. And this platform despite only having eight games was not discontinued until There's a little bit about this introduction in uh, Games Master The Oral History, which is where Dominic Diamond is basically talking about how he felt that this series had some of the best writing that he had ever done. 
mostly in the challenge titles uh, he writes because he's like oi bloke get off my half pipe is is a particular favorite of his and the fact that they were going quite ballsy because well, they knew they were going to be cancelled anyway. I mean, they cancelled themselves one season and Channel 4 uh, brought them back on. But he writes here, and you can tell how confident I feel about the comedy I'm writing, that I'm prepared to force my, by this time, sizable hideous body into a tiny pair of Speedos and lie in freezing cold water for a Baywatch gag. That might be my favourite show opening link of all time. Now, Dominic is very down on himself physically, but I'm looking at him and I'm like, dude... He looks fine. fine. He looks absolutely fine. And I think it's such a brilliant reveal as well. Because, you know, when they start doing this and you're like, okay, it's, it's Games Master, pervy Games Master doing a, a Baywatch gag. This feels like a very thinly veiled way of getting the Girl Fridays into red swimsuits so that we can all weigh the lads and all that. But oh, the joke is Dom's in tiny Speedos. That's, that's, the, that's the gag of the scenario. Arguably... I would say that the Girl Fridays are more covered than in yeah, their standard castaway outfit. Yeah. But Luke, on this island, it's a constant struggle for life and death. And the Girl Fridays are burdened with protecting Dominic from his own mishaps, really. And the near constant demand and need he has for mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Such is the demand. I only hope that they can tell us what's on today's show. TFI's Catalina takes control of a large hose in Roscoe McQueen. But first we begin with an event we call Oi Raptor, Bring Back My Leg. If you thought that large hose gag was funny, don't worry. There's seven more of them coming up later in the episode. Uh, To be honest, I think the jokes that come out later, particularly from Catalina, are of a higher quality and certainly seem to surprise Dom. I don't think Dom ever saw it coming in diamondism. I'm amazed they didn't put in a Looney Tunes double take sound effect. Yeah. Is it's really really good, but it's like it's we're going to get a lot of those hose based gags. But let's kick off into our first challenge. Oi Raptor, bring back my leg. What could we possibly be playing, Games Master? Arcade machines are always spectacular, but the sheer eye-popping excitement, Sega's Lost World takes the biscuit. The two-player version of the game involves an exhausting journey through four stages of non-stop action as wave upon wave of prehistoric tests attempt to rip you to shreds. For this challenge, a team of two lost world experts will attempt to demonstrate their skill by playing through the entire game using a single credit each. One credit equals four lives, and I suspect they'll need every one of them that they're to deal with this dinosaur deluge. It's a tough one. Good luck. <laughs> now, some arcade machines were spectacular, but time has not been kind to them. However, I put it to you that the Lost World Jurassic Park is as impressive now as it was then, because if I remember correctly, there was one in Heart of Gaming when we were back there for UCP Live 2 in January. That's correct. In fact, actually, I was down in Hastings just a couple of weekends ago, and there was one in an arcade there. And uh, I had a quick bash on it. Granted, it's not free like it is in Heart of Gaming. I had to put stupid actual money into it, but it's awesome. It's so much fun. It's really good. It's unfortunately not the the special edition version that um, by this point in time is out. Obviously, this is filmed in like summer, autumn 1997. So this is the original release of it. By January 1998, there was a brand new version of this that was more in line with the movie because they, they, they made this game 
based off the original script for The Lost World and then didn't re weren't really given a lot more information after that. Then the film came out, so they re-released the game to add in the San Diego scene that comes at the end and also add in cool things like hydraulics and air that shoots out and stuff to make it feel like a real big like motion ride of a video game. I don't think I've ever played that version. Um, I've only played the standard Lost World, but it's a really good game. Like I, the, the first one, the first Jurassic Park light gun game is really good, but I think the Lost World really does step it up. Sega, as a light gun development powerhouse, have really grown. They found their niche. They know their way around the hardware. This is a move up to the Sega Model 3 board, Model 2 being used for some of the previous light gun titles. But this game is just full of spectacle, albeit spectacle based on an early version of the script. It's the second of three Jurassic Park games. Unfortunately for Jurassic Park 3, it went to Konami, and I can't tell you much about Jurassic Park 3, the light gun game. And that probably tells you more, because I don't see that one in arcades now. You know, I don't no. think that one is still out there being fondly remembered and restored and presented to the public. But Sega's Jurassic Park The Lost World, it's still such a great game. But sadly, not a game we'll ever get to play at home because AM3 by this time had gone, yeah, not happening on the Saturn. Might do a PC port though. But Luke, guess what? What's that? It was cancelled. Yeah. Then they started converting it for the Dreamcast because the Dreamcast had much more power. Not only that, but it was we were told that in a news item on Games Master not that long ago, just a handful of weeks ago, we were told that this would end up on the on Sega's new console. But Luke, guess what? What's that? It was cancelled by January 2001, with the Dreamcast to follow shortly thereafter. I mean, in fairness, like, I don't think this would convert as well. Maybe it would have done. Some light gun games did convert pretty well to the, the home market, but I don't think it's, it's as fun to play a light gun game at home as it is in the arcades. Weirdly, I think it would work well now if you look at how the average size of television has grown. Like, imagine playing this sat down maybe with some Switch Joy-Cons or something, or some, you know, reasonable light gun in front of a 60-inch TV with surround sound. Oh, that'd be quite a lot of fun. But actually, the thing I, I like about this, and we, we kind of mentioned this on last week's episode, is I am I was excited for this challenge because this is more of what I wanted from this series of Games Master. Show-long challenges that are in line with some of the things that we had from Series 5 and Series 6, which is why we, spoilers, Martin Mathers is on commentary for this. You've got one credit. Complete the whole game on one credit. This is the sort of thing I love on Games Master. I love the challenges, like the you know, sort that we'll get in next week's episode, where it's like the best uh, players from around the country or around the world competing on a game. That I also love. But I love this equally as much. The idea of completing an arcade game on one credit that only gives you four lives. There's a real challenge to this. And the fact that it then runs through the whole show, I'm... I'm so on board for. You've already mentioned Martin Mathers makes his return in this episode on commentary. Now, he is a light gun game connoisseur. So I really hope we have two top class games players to play this challenge and not two people that almost definitely came from Dominic's mum's talent school. Right, for this challenge, we scoured the country for the best Lost World players and it was a very generous scour. We came up with Oliver Kay and Tammy Sidey. <laughs> Tammy. Now, uh, all about the Lost World, a game about very, very scary animals. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about nice animals. Have you got any pets? Um, yeah, I've had uh, three gerbils so far. Uh -huh. uh, uh, my first one was called Chimney Sweep. Good. And uh, he got killed by a cat. 
Oh no. Somehow, I don't know how, but the cage got open, the job got out. Was it really upsetting? Yeah, it was, I had to bury him and yeah. it was just a bit upsetting. Well, you'll find Oliver throughout life, there's a lot of dead gerbils. Uh, yeah. Tammy, uh, the reason you and Oliver are so good at this game is because of teamwork. You just get on, you just like each other. Is there anyone you don't like? Yeah, Miss Collins, my science teacher. What, what don't you like about her? She's very boring. Everyone falls asleep in her lesson. <laughs> Does she not notice? Um, no, she's too busy talking. Uh -huh. <laughs> So, uh, Miss Collins, if you're watching, sort it out. Oh, I mean, they scoured the country to find the best players on this game, and what they found were two children in Oliver Kay and Tammy Sidey. Now, I don't know for certain that Ollie is from the talent school. I'd be willing to put money that Tammy definitely is, because when she talks with Dominic, she's not just talking with Dominic, she is delivering. She has some acting going on in the way she delivers her lines about her teacher and whatnot. But one thing I did appreciate is they are both colour coordinating, both stood there in red and black, red and black being the colours of the Jurassic Park logo. And uh, Luke, what does red signify? A colour that signifies danger and passion. Thank you. Yeah, I, I get what you mean for because Oliver has got real series one, two, three vibes about him, just sort of like, you know, starting a story, then realising that's probably not a great story not really having a lot to say because like Dom's asking him about you know have you ever had pets and then he starts telling the story about his gerbil and then all of a sudden you can see in his eyes the realization he comes to when he's like oh I'm talking about burying my gerbil on tv but also having flashbacks to that time he had to bury his gerbil and the traumatic experience that was for him he just sort of was like almost trails off from it of like he started this story and then realized that was not the right story to be telling. And Dom thoughtfully pontificates, well, throughout life, there are a lot of dead gerbils. I mean, Luke, it's true. There are a lot of dead gerbils throughout our lives. I'm sure he will do this challenge for chimney sweep. Dom quickly moves away from the, the morbidity of Oliver over to Tammy, who says, oh, the reason they're so good at this game is because they communicate. They like each other. They have teamwork. But is there anyone that she doesn't like? And this is where the acting comes in. Yeah, because she talks about her science teacher. Oh, she's boring. Everyone falls asleep in the class. And I was like, well, how does she not know? She's like, oh, well, it's because she's too busy chatting to realise that they've all fallen asleep. But during this story, Tammy is doing acting and gestures. But it's fine. Yeah. It's absolutely fine. I would rather have this than Mumblecore. And it's, um, you'd have thought maybe this would have been a brother-sister team or like a you know, some, some form of siblings team, but they, we never really get any explanation how they know each other or how they got so good at this game. Because you're right, like they even talk about how this is a game of teamwork. It's a team of knowing the other player is going to be, it's going to have your back. Actually, which is something that Martin brings up later on when they do make some errors. But we get like no history as to how they know each other or how they knew that they could complete this game on a singular credit. No, and it's a shame because they could have just fed a little bit of a backstory into that. They could have done it. It could have been just a couple of lines or even just talk about watching them practice in the green room. But but no, they're just two kids. And it does kind of lean into what is said in the book about how much of a rush Series 7 was at yeah. times and, and perhaps some of the some of the difficulties they had finding people to do the challenges and in fact doing the challenges it's amazing looking back at it now and with the hindsight of the book how many similarities there are between series seven and the reboot previously on the show he's got through the whole of virtua cop 
without losing a life. He's also played two Machines of Virtual Cop 2 at the same time. He is the arcade shooting game legend Martin Mathers and he joins us now. Welcome, Martin. Thank you very much. Now, since you were on the show last year, what have you been up to? Oh, I've been, I've been doing a lot of things, but mostly it involves a large intake of alcohol because I've been a student. So. Right. Not wrong with that. Nothing wrong Because with it's mostly my tax that uh, gets get spent on that. Uh, now, Martin, you are the undisputed king of this type of game. If you had to think of one attribute that's important, what, what would it be? I'd say it's probably teamwork. You've got to work together, look out for the other person, you know, pick people off. Um, also, clean pair of pants might help oh always useful and speaking of the man himself returning for his fourth appearance in seven series of games master martin maders is in the booth for commentary but yeah like he even says the like the interview him in the book of course and he's just like talks about how it was quite surreal from being the failure that he was on series one when he couldn't complete that terminator 2 challenge to all the stuff he did through games world to being a a color commentator for the series and, and dominic talks about how well, we had to bring martin back like martin is the best games player in the country outside of danny curley he really felt like part of the crew and how they felt that yeah he 100 if if dominic's basically said it look if this is going to be our last run and we're going to go out with a bang and i'm going to do this with my mates martin has to be part of that and i actually love the minds part of it because it also ties into his history with the show he completed virtual cop back in series five on one credit he failed at doing virtual cop two with two guns in series six they don't bring up the fact that he failed they basically just like and you also did this but he brings pedigree to this which i really like we have had a variety of experts as guest commentators across the run of games master including of course frequent co-commentator dave perry the games animal who was just an expert on everything apart from mario 64 but martin is in a unique position because as you mentioned he's a three-time former challenger one-time winner and he is very verbose on the microphone he's very good he's very entertaining and most importantly he's not been resting on his laurels since the last time he was on games master he's been getting pissed he's been wasting dominic's tax money and knowing how much dominic gets paid per series that's a lot of tax money. He's probably funding all of Mr. Mather's uh, education, just just Dominic's tax alone. I'm. J it was nice to see Martin back. I like. I mean, in the book, Dominic describes this as his graduation because this is him going from challenger to part of the furniture to part of the team, and you can see how confident he has grown as an on-screen persona over the years of him doing stuff with Hewland and doing stuff with Games World and, and Games Master and stuff. It's really nice to see. I, I, if I was to give one criticism against him in this is that he's very harsh on the two players if they make a mistake because he's Martin Mathers and he doesn't make mistakes. So when someone else does, it's like, well, that was fucking stupid. Why'd you make a mistake? Exactly. Virtua Cop 2, he didn't make a mistake. He deliberately shot that person in the face because they look like Peter Andre. No mistakes made. No mistakes made. But you can tell how he has matured and how he has grown because, Luke, there is a pant joke and it is not Dominic's. Dominic is pipped to the panty post. That's how you know he is so ingrained within Games Master as a whole. He's making pants jokes. He knows what will make Dominic laugh. But. Dom, sated by the pant joke, wishes the challengers the best of luck, reminds them of their four-life limit, and the challenge gets underway. And they, 
mine says, you know, it's quite an easy stage. Basically, like a lot of first stages in arcade games, just to kind of get you involved, kind of get you used to things. I like how Dom even goes, it does it in a question as well, being like, is this like all other light gun games where you have to shoot off screen in order to reload? And mine's like, "Uh, yes, Dominic, it is, to lead into the rest of the conversation. But it is just about, here's how the game works. Here are raptors, shoot the raptors, get through this stage. Also, here's an extra life. So Oliver gets up to five lives already. And Tammy has got one third of a power bar, which means she is one third of her way to also getting an extra life. That third, and I think it becomes two thirds of a power bar at some point. She never earns that extra life throughout this entire challenge. Spoilers, but Oliver is the only one that gains an extra life. And also spoilers, He's the first one to lose one as well. He sure is. But this game just looks so much fun as they're running around, shooting raptors right from the off. Although, should point out, it's very important they're not killing the raptors, they're sleep darts. It very explicitly says in the game's documentation, they are tranquilizer darts. So when you are shooting a T-Rex in the face... 500 times it's with tranquilizer darts luke or shooting that brachiosaur in the foot (laughs) with tranquilizer darts not the best place to try and shoot a dinosaur at all because they've got fairly hard skin to begin with and the foot it's got to be like a horse times at least like 12 oh yeah it's more than four more than four definitely more than four but i mean when i was reading up about this game earlier they were talking about how they found it kind of difficult to animate it in terms of particularly the raptors because they move so quickly and they wanted to be able to spend time with ilm but didn't get that they did get to visit the set and everything and they said just went to see stan winston in general and just went straight to the source to just be like show us a raptor and they showed him it I, that is a hell of a consolation prize i sadly just missed out on missing Stan Winston before he passed away. And uh, he is one of my special effects horror absolute heroes. So, man, any developer at Sega that got to visit Stan Winston, you know what? ILM is still around and ILM is ILM. Stan Winston Studios, man, particularly when the man himself was there, that's something special. That's actual movie magic. Uh, But yeah, they said the Raptors were the hardest things to do because they're so quick. But they do a great job of it. The final product, they move so quickly and so... They move like raptors. And that's one of the things I really like about this as a game is you really... Like, I think that they capture the movement of each of the dinosaurs. Like, the brachiosaur moves and feels like you're facing up against a brachiosaur. The T-Rex feels like you're facing up against the T-Rex. And same with the raptors. I think they're doing a great job with it. I mean, a lot of this comes down to when you go back to how Jurassic Park, the first one, was made and... The originally, there was the concept of they were going to use stop motion, but what they actually ended up doing was using stop motion as motion capture to help give the motion uh, realism and smoothness and organic nature. But with the raptors in particular, the raptor movements were also set by Stan Winston and co, because I think we talked about this at the time. People talk about how amazing the CGI still is in Jurassic Park, and the reason is it's not CGI. There are a lot of scenes that I know people will go, that looks great. Or they'll go, oh, you can tell that's computer generated. And it's not. It's one of Winston's puppets. There's a lot less CGI in Jurassic Park than people think there is. The magic of Jurassic Park is not its CGI. It's how it blends CGI with puppet work. And so so the, the two feel just one and the same. 
the use of the CGI to just, the special effects to enhance the puppetry. The raptor snout up against the window and the blast of condensation on the glass. Oh, it's beautiful. You could do that with CGI now, and you could do it as convincingly as Winston did it with the puppets now, but you couldn't have done it five years ago, I'd wager, not with that level of, kind Realism. of heft. And yet, like something you can tangibly touch. Yeah, but anyway, that's true. We'll just do a separate Jurassic Park podcast at some point, but they are doing pretty well. And there's a whole extra mechanic, as you mentioned, there's the power bars and you get the power bars, not by shooting dinosaurs, but by rescuing people, which you do by shooting dinosaurs. But you rescue people, they give you power-ups, basically. Anyway, never mind that. <laughs> Here's a boat show. Last week's boat show in London saw top racing broke Nigel Mansell lured by a huge fee to endorse upcoming game Powerboat Racing. The title is due for release on PlayStation and PC in late March. Unfortunately, <laughs> things went badly wrong for Nigel when he found himself sandwiched between Peter's Andre and Stringfellow, surely two of the biggest gits on the planet. My note said, a boat show... Games Master at a boat show, Nigel Mansell at a boat show, endorsing a boat-based video game with 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 Peter Andre and Peter Stringfellow. Like there, there are le- there are levels to the oddness of this news feature. Oh, that's the rat turd sprinkles on this walnut whip of shit that is apparently now news in episode eight. I when I was I was like never in my wildest dreams of doing this podcast did I think I would have to make the note. The Boat Show on Games Master. Nigel Mansell, we've definitely had reference to him before. That's fine. Peter Andre, we've already talked to him about in this episode. Martin May the shot him. Man, Peter Stringfellow's a creepy looking bastard, isn't he? Isn't he just, yeah. I mean... Mansell <laughs> looks genuinely uncomfortable between the two of them. Dominic said he was in the sandwich of Peter's, Andre and Stringfellow, two of the biggest gits on the planet. Quality. He's not entirely wrong. But Nigel Mansell was there as a product endorsement. He was at a boat show to promote a video game. I'm sure there were lots of gamers at the boat show obviously it's our natural habitat luke every year i'm not looking up where e3 is or where wasd is or where the game dev con is at i'm looking for the ideal home boat show and it's remarkable as well because when you do get to that boat show there is only ever one game that's there and it's usually just a variation of powerboat racing but i go every year just to see what updates they've made to it maybe one of these years they'll surprise us with something that isn't a boat game the next Resident Evil will debut at the boat show, the talky boat show. I mean, I say that for at least five hours this week, I've been streaming on Twitch, a game where I'm driving a boat, but there is eldritch horror in it. So it's closer to Resident Evil than Powerboat Racing VR. I was going to say it's closer to Street Peter Stringfellow being at a boat show. That feels like eldritch horror right there. There are at least a couple of villages in it that could be related or may actually be him as he is now. But this game did come out it's a racing game it's a british developed racing game and it was mixed to unfavorable reviews basically the camera's kind of shit, the controls are kind of shit. but luke guess what what's that there were versions planned for the game boy color and the nintendo 64 they were cancelled for release in the year 2000 like a handful of years later, I don't think in the in the year 2000 what the Nintendo 64 needed to kind of claw back some of the war that it's lost was powerboat racing. I mean, they had Wave Race 64 right at launch, although maybe powerboat racing finally got the hang of that four-player split-screen mode. In fact, they did on the PlayStation. I was about to say, not only was it... Uh, 
they needed a powerboat. They needed a powerboat game with mixed reviews. That's really going to turn the tide for Nintendo. And the Game Boy Color, Christ, this would have just been the boat racing levels from Micro Machines on the Game yeah, Boy Color. 100%, yeah. On the plus side, it would have been the boat racing levels from Micro Machines on the Game Boy Color. But that's not our only boat in the news. Titanic, the most expensive movie in history, docks in cinemas everywhere on Friday. Most of the movie's whopping budget went on special effects produced by our friends at Digital Domain. When we went out to see them last series, they showed us a rough cut of the film and I said, it's great guys, but I think it'll be better if you make the ship sink. No, more boats. Titanic is opening in cinemas everywhere this Friday. Ironically, it was also out in cinemas in this year, 2023, for the 25th anniversary, so wow. And if we'd done this five years ago, it would have been out for the 20th anniversary. And I think it also got cinematic release for the 15th and the 10th anniversary. I'm fairly certain five years from now, guess what, Luke? It'll be released on the N64. <laughs> and then re-released into cinemas. I uh, so I got to talk about Titanic on my when I did some, a video for Cineworld recently, because you mentioned it was, it was re-released just last month, in fact. Oh, no, two months ago as we were recording this. It was released for Valentine's Day uh, 2023. And Cineworld even did a special Valentine's Day gimmick with it where they did they had artists down so you could take your date there and draw them like one of jack's french girls um whichever way around you wanted to do it um but uh, you know clothes stayed on it was a classy affair that's what i was going to ask i was just like i could see this backfiring horribly I'm like, all right, draw me like one of Jack's French girls. Okay, kex down, lad. The, the, the windows of the VIP area steaming up like the car. No, this was a, a more classy affair at Cineworld. And as far as I'm aware, it actually went quite well. I think people had a really good time doing it. And I, I said to uh, Dan Layton, my co-host on that, I was like, that's a really ballsy first date move as well. Like if you were to take someone on a first date and be like, I'm going to draw you like one of Jack's French girls. That means one of us is going to drown? <laughs> But get a nice necklace at the end of it and live to 100. There we go. Hey, there's positives. Our relationship will be fleeting, but you'll have a long life. And think of the fun dance we'll have before the boat sinks. Fortunately, your entire life will be soundtracked by Celine Dion. So I have not seen Titanic since 1998. Um, Maybe, just maybe, I'll try and watch it before we get to the end of this episode before the series run i don't think i'll get to it before by the time we get to nine but by the time we get to ten maybe i'll watch it i'm gonna leave this in because you always said i think i'll try and watch it before we get to the end of this episode and i'm like mate that'll have to be on four speed because that's a long fucking movie that's how long our records are though fair can't argue with that uh i don't think i've seen titanic since it first came out and in fact i will question over whether I've actually seen all of it at all. It, you know, it is a perfectly fine movie. The special effects still look amazing in whatever version you want to see it. 4D, FX, 3D, Wazoo, Sensor Round, Tingler, however. But I, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't deliberately watch it purely because so many people have watched it. And I've got so many movies to watch that people haven't watched. This is, this is where the thing is, is when I go through the latest releases on Netflix or Amazon Prime, I'm not looking for the next big blockbuster. I'm looking for the weird indie movie that they just picked up to make up numbers because, you know, everyone's watched the latest Fast and the Furious movie. But what about this weird Mexican horror movie that only runs 73 minutes? Who's watched that, Luke? I, I know for a fact that I have seen this all the way through because I went to the pictures to see this in, in March of 1998. All right, yeah, March of 1998. No, January of 1998. It is January, isn't it? 
Yes, January of 1998, I would have gone to see this. Did you see it by yourself or was it on a date? No, I went with a friend and it was actually his second time seeing it because he went with wow. his he went with his mum and his sister and he told me it's the greatest movie I've ever seen in my life. Like it is a proper like cinematic thing. And he was talking about how he cried so much like toward, you know, at, at various points in the movie. And so I was like, oh, cool. Well, so I went to go and see it with him and I, I did not cry. Uh, and I came out of being like, yeah, I was all right. I was all right. You saw. Yeah, I was all right. You, you you kind of saw Kate Winslet's tits. There we yeah. go. Do you know what? That's and, it. And I mean, of the age that you were at the time, at the I'm sure it was an eye-opening experience. Absolutely. The twelve-year-old lad I am at this point, freshly turned twelve, no less. Grand. What a nice time I had at the pictures. But. It's a good job they took Dom's advice after he saw the rough cut of the movie because it would have been a weird old movie if the boat hadn't sunk. PC owners starved of originality will rejoice in March with the release of Heads, featuring 220 different characters over 20 worlds. You basically roam around having scraps with other heads and if you beat them, you collect their head with the weapon contained therein. With heads based on such varied folk as Muhammad Ali, Eric Cantona and Mystic Meg, it should come as no surprise that this game came from the warped imagination of our very own Kirk Ewing. Now, this is another game that we have actually talked about in the past on this show because we mentioned it when Kirk Ewing uh, was on series six and he came in basically wearing all of his, his all of his Viz stuff on to, hey by the way I work for Viz now um, and we said he goes on to make heads and I was like oh yeah I remember that game being shown on Games Master and being heavily promoted in Games Master magazine and becoming quite obsessed with the idea of, of this game and I bought it I, I did get this for my PC. I did play it. And when you then look up on, you know, the Wikipedia article for it and stuff, and it's like, it got mixed reviews. I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. Because the game's okay. Like, it's it's a great idea in concept. Uh, I think now it would be a huge, like, free-to-play enterprise. Um, but here, sort of, like, as a standalone game, it's just broadly fine. Now It would be a huge moneymaker now. My first note on this was i'm amazed this game hasn't come back and been microtransactioned out the ass yeah this feels like a Fortnite type deal where you just are doing like a battle royale shooter type situation earning different heads and different costumes and different looks and those give you different abilities it's a really fun idea and it's a really fun concept it's the game's just totally fine uh, but I, I remember very vividly seeing this episode of games master seeing this bit of advertisement for it and then the the magazine went hard on this game, probably because of the Kirk Ewing connection. But they gave like they had freebies for it and stuff. They were like trading cards, I think they came with it or something, or like promotional cards or something. And loads of magazine articles writing up about how this was going to be the next big thing for PC gaming. I think if there'd been a stronger online presence, and in fact, if that whole battle royale online game, if this had even just been four, five years later, if we just kind of got into the Unreal Tournament era when we started to have broadband at home and we all had those little blue manta rays for our first ADSL connections. You wouldn't have been able to microtransaction it, but just the player base would have made it a brand rather than this strange little curio. I mean, 220 different characters. That is more heads than there are Pokemon at this point. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And you think one of the things about Pokemon, got to collect them all. Like it's all about the collectathon aspect of, of, of you know, the, the appeals to kids. This could have been huge. Like, you're right, like, even if it's just a few years later, like, World of Warcraft isn't that far away in our Games Master timeline here. Obviously, you know, I know this is the end of our Games Master timeline, but it's only, what, six years away, maybe, 
five, six years away? Can't be that much. If this had come out around that time when you could charge people like a monthly fee to play this, I think you could have made some bank off of it. I'd be inclined to agree. Okay, uh, Oliver and Sammy are trying to play all the way through the Lost World before the end of the show using only four lives. When we last saw them, Oliver just picked up an extra life, which was good news. The bad news is, during that little section there, he lost it again. However, during that incredible bout of news, Oliver has lost that life that he collected, so probably a good job that he did get it, really. Yep, we're back to four apiece and it's raining, and there's a T-Rex boss attack. And they seem to be doing pretty well, but then Tammy gets grabbed out of the car by the T-Rex. And this is a game mechanic I love in this game, which is you have to stop shooting and start mashing a button. You have to go full athlete kings and mash that button to basically get the dog to drop the stick. It's it's two levels, which I love about it. It's you as a player have to mash the start button to get yourself released, while the other player it's got to continue shooting the little circles because the game gives you little targets to aim for. You clear those targets, that clears that section of the thing. So it's, it is teamwork. It's the amount that you're pressing the button, the amount that you can shoot, that's what saves you. And that is going to be quite a crucial element as we get into the end game of this challenge. Yeah. Amazingly, she manages to escape with all of her life still intact and they finish taking the T-Rex down. So that's it. End of stage one. One down three to go. And one of the things I really like about this challenge, and it ties back into what you and I were talking about with the Tomb Raider challenge in episode one of this series, where we didn't really see a lot of the game. We see loads of the game being played here, not just in like the real time aspect of it, because we see the end of stage one, the start of stage two, and we get to see it a little bit towards the end as well. We get loads of like replay footage with Martin's commentary you get to see a good chunk of game playing in this. And as that's what draws me to Games Master, what drew me to Games Master back in the day is what draws me to it now as an adult. I could have still stood to have seen more uninterrupted blocks of play. Although I say that, like gun games, particularly ones that are as chaotic as The Lost World, it can get a bit sensory overload if you're not actually playing it because you're just seeing polygons flying around the screen. You're not having to react to them. So maybe if they'd actually given me more, I'd have been asking for less. But they get to the start of stage two. They're in a moving car. They have to shoot more dinosaurs. Sorry, tranquilize more dinosaurs. And it includes dinosaurs that Tom's like, no, these these are nice dinosaurs. Or as it says in Jurassic Park, veggie sores, Lex. Exactly. These are the good guys. And Martin's like, nah, vegetarians are arseholes. Fuck them. They're supposed to be. They're supposed to be vegetarians, but no, I don't think it works that way because in my experience, vegetarians are not nice people. I wonder if he still believes that. I might send him a message and ask if he still believes that vegetarians are arseholes. P.S. I am a vegetarian. <laughs> and my wife's a vegan. I, uh... Also, I mean, shout out to Martin in this segment as well here, because he's got one of my favorite jokes, an understated joke in this as well, because you go underneath the, the, the brachiosaur and you shoot its foot before it can stamp down on you. And then its tail starts to slap down you on you as well. And Dominic's like, oh, you know, that's pretty difficult. And Martin goes, be a bit of a pain in the neck. Because they've got long necks, you see, eh? It was a better joke than it got credit for. It really was. I thought he did very good in that. But anyway, I think that's enough dino action for now. I think it's time for a celebrity challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? I've enlisted Roscoe McQueen on the PlayStation to demonstrate the horrors of life in today's emergency services. Taking on the role of an intrepid firefighter, my contestant was clear three rooms of tires started by a gaggle of dastardly robots. My contestant must keep an ever watchful eye on his temperature gauge. 
If the level creeps too high, the challenge will come to an incendiary end. Here is a game that, like a lot of these kind of like early mid-tier PlayStation games, I had completely forgotten about, but as soon as I saw the gameplay come up, I was like, oh, this one. Roscoe McQueen, Firefighter Extreme, although for us, we lost the Firefighter Extreme, which is amazing because it's the mid to late 90s. Luke, everything's extreme. Minimineer, I actually also think it's a better title as well because I, I appreciate a name and job title that can rhyme or work in sort of tandem with each other. I always really liked... Uh, Kevin Smith's Ranger Danger and the Danger Rangers. Like, yeah. I love that. It's like a little sort of palindrome type thing. So I think a better title for this is Roscoe McQueen, Firefighter Extreme. And this is also a very, I guess, American-centric take on a game that is actually much better and is on the Saturn with Burning Rangers. This is kind of like the very American cartoonified version of that. And the main reason that's in my head is it was actually reviewed Burning Rangers was reviewed in the issue of Games Master that we're just finishing up covering here. Mm -hmm. So it's fascinating to see what was a rare highlight on the Saturn at this point. And this game, which was released and was middling, it was it was fine. It was perfectly fine. We've had worse games as challenges. Mid-tier PlayStation game is the perfect way to describe it. 75%. That's exactly it, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that I would have seen it in the magazine, saw it got that review. I've never played it. I've never seen anyone play it. I don't know anyone who played it. But it's it feels like a really nice budget title that your nan might have bought you for Christmas. This is the one you get when you've asked for Burning Rangers, and not only does she get you the wrong game, she gets it for the wrong smegging console. Now, once again on Games Master, the celebrity guest that fits the challenge absolutely perfectly. She once watched the episode of London's Burning. Uh, please welcome the greatest thing in the history of TFI Friday, Catalina Girado. Uh, one of the things I've quite enjoyed about Series 7 is Dom copping to the fact that they've mostly just hired birds that he fancies or lads that he's already friends with and got drunk all saints really are the sort of the 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 only person there that doesn't quite fit that mold actually the footballers as well but they were there for like world cup 98 stuff but i always like how they try to make it sound like they that's not why they brought them in because it's like oh today's guest is is perfect for this challenge she wants to watch london's burning did you ever watch london's burning luke i i seemed i remember like being around at my nan's house and seeing it but i don't think i ever myself watched it i don't think i watched it to begin with i mean it, it's weird it's like like the bill which started off a uh, wooden top as a single one-off drama uh, london's burning started off a 1986 tv movie of the same name and i'm trying to remember at what point i would have picked it up i don't think it would have been series one to three i don't think it would have been series four i actually think i would have started to watch it around 93 94 so series six to nine which isn't doing too badly for itself either i just brought the wikipedia page for it right 17 to 18 million viewers an episode and that's not bad that's not bad at all it's almost games master figures it was one of those shows where like like the bill was a soap opera but because it was crime you know because there were car chases and villains and this that and the other it kind of attracted a wider audience because you know blokes had watched the bill because the rosers and they're nicking some scumbags and some of them are a bit like they're in the sweeney and london's burning would also attract a broader audience because there were fires there were explosions 
And sometimes lead characters died. Yeah. That was always a risk with London's Burning. A lot like a soap opera. Is that you can kill off characters for your sort of shock moments to be like, can you believe what it will be the fate of this character? Better tune in. But to be honest, they tended they tended to die more spectacularly in London's Burning as standard. Man, the show ran until 2002. That's a good yeah. innings as well. Yeah, I I remember the weird nicknames they had. Like, I know there was a guy that always had the nickname Sick Note. That's the one that always sticks in my head is he just had the nickname Sick Note. And yeah, it was, uh, it was a good show at the time. I haven't been back and watched it since. It's not one that I see being repeated, like I see the bill being repeated or even Soldier Soldier being repeated. So, uh, Maybe it's a future candidate for a bonus episode. Maybe we pick a particularly explosive episode of London's Burning and take a look at it. I'd quite like to do that. Because as I say, it wasn't a show that was particularly on my radar. Uh, we were more of a heartbeat household than a uh, than a London's Burning one. Oh, my mum was definitely more heartbeat than London's Burning. So that's why like, I can't base my watching habits of London's Burning on when they might have been watching it. Because heartbeat would be on before London's Burning. And then London's burning was at nine o'clock usually because mm. it had fire, danger. Welcome to the show, Katina. What a graceful little walk that you have. It was with my ballet training. That was very, very nice. Now, it's a, it's a first for us on Games Master because uh, we have a guest that's got all levels and A levels, which is, oh, what A levels did you get? Uh, oh God, I forgot now. History of Art, Art and English. Uh-huh. As well as these things, you have also played violin. At the Albert Hall? I have indeed. Solo or with a load of other blokes? I played, when I was 10 years old, I played in the orchestra at the school proms. And then when I was 12 year old, I played the solo, first violin solo for the butt double violin concerto. Do you still play? Occasionally, if I wanted to. I've, you know, I, mean, I mean, you know, I've dabbled a bit. Would you like me to play with you? Have oh, you, you could. You could. You could fiddle. I certainly could. <laughs> Something that was on in our household was TFI Friday. We, I mean, I've been in particular, once I had a TV in my room, loved watching TFI Friday. Uh, we've talked about it extensively on this channel, as on this show before as well, because I just really, really like TFI Friday. The musical performances, I've sometimes fallen down like YouTube rabbit holes of watching, actually when editing this podcast as well, of falling down YouTube rabbit holes of watching musical performance after musical performance from TFI Friday. Uh, and looking at some of the, you know, the more outlandish stuff that was on there. So when they brought out Catalina from TFI Friday, I, it didn't immediately ring a bell for me. And I was half expecting this to be one of those people. And we've had them quite a few times throughout Games Master, more in Series 7 than any other series previously, of the no Wikipedia hyperlink. So on Wikipedia, on the Games Master page for on Wikipedia, it lists every single celebrity that's been on the show with a hyperlink to their individual page. I would have put money down that Catalina was a non-hyperlinked entry, but nope, sure as shit, she's there with her own Wikipedia page. And then when I read it, I was like, oh, I see now, because she did I'm a celebrity, and that led to celebrity this, which led to celebrity that, which led to celebrity the other. And she basically just did celebrity-based shows for a long period of time. I mean, at this point in time, she isn't even known by her name on TFI Friday. She is just credited as Gorgeous Girl. And in fact, at this point, by the time this is broadcast, she's no longer part of TFI Friday. She just disappeared in the middle of the third season 
with no explanation, something that I think stands to this day. But as you mentioned, when she did return to TV, she did various chat shows, I'm a Celebrity, this, that and the other. And all that continued until mid-2010, when following her father's death, she created a foundation and became an art curator for her father's work. He was an artist. And she herself is now a full-time artist and designer where she blends art and fashion. She's got a website. You can still go and see what she's up to nowadays. And with some of the people that we've had, particularly in the Dom and Mates era, I mean, we talked about the, about Joe Guest and how tragic and, you know, like I'm still concerned about Joe Guest. We talked about her and, you know, still worried about what her current state is and how she is and seeing people whose careers just ended. But then I see Catalina and I'm just like, yeah, you're doing, you're doing great. You're doing all you're right. You're doing better if that you're probably doing better than if you'd stayed in TV. 100%. Yeah. She is someone who took like the modeling career and has sort of tied it back into art which is something that she did from a young age where they talk about in the interview before the, the challenge and stuff that she played violin. She played the Royal Albert Hall when she was a wee nipper uh, on several different as part of an orchestra and doing a solo. That's dead impressive stuff. So she's then gone on this great little TV run where she was I'm a celebrity for a year or so and now has gone back to the arts. I think that's a really nice trajectory for someone to go on. But at the time she's filming this appearance on Games Master, she's still part of the TFI Friday crowd, she's still turning down ugly blokes' advances. No, wait, her advances were turned down by the ugly blokes, weren't they? That was the challenge. That's cool, yeah. She's still having her advances turned down by ugly blokes week in, week out. And, and she looks remarkably calm as she makes her way to the beach in a very, very wobbly canoe. And she is, she is one of those people, and we've said this a number of times on the show, she gets it. She, I mean, I'm coming from TFI Friday, like you, you have to get it, I guess. And she just gets it immediately. Like the second they start doing hose-based gags, and Don would have, you know, like you know, prefaced a lot of this earlier in the day, but she's just on board. I, I would wait, she probably spent a lot of the day thinking up her own gags herself. Because every time that Dom thinks, oh, I'll do the, the fun innuendo now to get a laugh, she just comes back with a better one. The Royal Albert Hall is a perfect example. She mentions her two periods playing at the Royal Albert Hall, playing the violin. And Dom's like, well, you know, now I've, I've, I've played a little bit. C can I play with you? Which, hey, hey, innuendo. And she comes right back with, yeah, sure. You could definitely fiddle. And there's this big pause where Dom is thinking, I don't know what to say next. I've, I've, all my punchlines are lesser. We should just move on. But before we do move on, you know, we have the crowd shots when the celebrities come in and it's a cutaway and this, that, and the other. Did you see the dude in that tank top? No. He is hench. <laughs> like he is, he is Shelton Benjamin hench. <laughs> Hold on. Let me, let me bring this up. Oh, yeah. Bloody hell. One of the gladiators in the front row as well. He also looks like he's 20 years older than everyone else in the crew. Wait, was he a lifeguard they had on duty? Actually, oh, I bet you that's it. He's one of the lifeguards. Because occasionally you see an older bloke or lady there on the raft. And I bet you they're lifeguards. Yeah, you in can case see one of the him kids in the goes head first into the water. Exactly. You can see, like, in the wide shot, he's there He's there in the centre, and that's where you'd put your lifeguards. Yeah, yeah. So there we go. Mystery solved. But as much as, you know, I was being entertained by Catalina, I, was, I had to rewind because my brain was just going, 
where the hell did that guy come from? <laughs> yeah, because I haven't seen him in any of the other episodes. I haven't spotted him. And he gets a close-up shot in this episode. I mean, if you had a dude that was that fit, you'd get a close-up shot as well. Why do you think I do the job I do? <laughs> but this is, I mean, we're going to go into the ad break now. An episode unlike ones we've had previously. Last week's episode, we were talking about how 17 minutes of that episode was first half. Here, 10 minutes. It feels like Games Master of old. I did have to check that the episode wasn't missing footage because I thought, oh, this got to the commercial break a lot quicker than I was expecting, but no. It's because it didn't it's do the a, It's not even an equal break, it's a shorter first half. Right, uh, at the moment we have got the Lost World Challenge going on. Martin Mathers is keeping an eye on that. Catalina is uh, about to play Roscoe McQueen. All of that coming up after this break. <laughs> It's the last thing you want when you fly off for some summer sun. But for thousands of British holidaymakers every year, illness and injury is the nightmare they face. The battle to help them is waged on the phone. What I'd like you to look into is availability and cost for an air ambulance. Meet the people on the other end of the telephone lifeline whose mission is rescue. Cutting Edge returns with a two-part special on Tuesday at 9 on 4. We see. We hear. We feel. We can even sense things. But for some reason, some of us sense more than others. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. 
Michael, please. past him. Did you see Charles at the weekend? Flip. Yes. Played 18 holes at Wood Park. Swab, please. Ah, this looks more complicated than we thought. Yes. We're going to be seeing rather a lot of this, chap. Hmm. I hope he's got an understanding boss. Did you win? Yes. It's close until the 30th. There may be trouble ahead But while there's moonlight and music And love and romance Let's face the music and dance At Allied Dunbar, we understand that no one's health is guaranteed But don't worry, the right financial advice will help you keep your finances in shape And dance Even when you're not How's he doing? He's comfortable Anai Dunbar, professional advice for the life you don't yet know. Didi's mum now deals with all bills by direct debit. Mum, I'm trying to do my homework. Leaving more time for the divine sounds of DJ Danny the dog. 22.15 p.m. Suspect still in his flat. I'm bored. Do you fancy a coffee? Go on, then. <sighs> Listen, punk. You're nicked. <laughs> What's all this? Just a few groceries. I look what I got. Crosswords. I'll give you crosswords, Walker. We're on surveillance. Remain vigilant. Lost at sea in a basket. Seven letters. I know the feeling. Get more from your current account with Barclays Editions. Free phone 0800 00 10 11 now. Welcome back to Game Master. Two small children are being ripped apart by raptors in the space studio and we have parental permission to do it. That's Ollie and Tammy on a lost world. Joining us as well is the lovely Catalina. She is about to attempt Roscoe McQueen. Helping me to describe the action is Mr. Rick Henderson. Rick, Hello. firemen, how much admiration do you have for them? To be honest, firemen are the heroes of the street. They really are. We come back from the booth for our final Rick Henderson appearance on Games Master, uh, I am afraid to say. And... I think that he'd be pretty happy with this being his final challenge to commentate on because this is, I mean, Dominic Diamond even references this line in the book as well as one of his favourite lines from Games Master history. Did you ever want to be a fireman when you were little? No, but I wanted a huge hose. All right. And Dom's reaction, that is a genuine Dom laugh right there. It's a genuine mate's laugh of, yeah, you got me with that one. That was a really funny joke. Catalina has a great laugh about it as well. I, I don't know what's funny. I just thought that Rick must have had a really big garden. Well, yeah, well uh, yes, I suppose you could argue that that would be uh, the sense. Um, yes, maybe maybe it is just a big garden. Although he lives in London, so I, I don't think that's probably right. Oh, yeah, you're right. He must be talking about his penis. That's yeah, yeah, fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, it's Games Master after all. I think, I, oh. I, I think I'd probably, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about putting money down on things. I'd probably put more money on the fact that He's talking about cocks. Do you know what, Luke? I briefly just slipped into this hypothetical London's Burning podcast. <laughs> and so I just thought we were talking about water flow and not penises. My mistake. Um, let's move on. 
can you imagine if we do a London's Burning podcast and it's more innuendo late than Games Master? Is? <laughs> like, well, this really took me by surprise. I would imagine we ha- we would get a lot of material out of an episode of London's Burning. I mean, they're all hoses and helmets and poles. And exactly. That's it's easy. That's why this game was picked because it's it's easy to make all the gags on. But Rick here in his final one gives us all the good advice you need. Get rid of the robots first, because the robots will just create more fires. I mean, this is how Judgment Day begins. So she's got two and a half minutes to do this, and she gets rid of the robots in the first room in about 20 seconds, and then starts to remove the fires, uh, but runs out of water, goes to the lockers to find more water. And it's watching her play this game, it's very methodical, and it's one of those, you could tell that she practiced this in the day with someone there to be like, do this, then do this, go here, get this, do this, go to this room, do this, get these, go to this room, and you'll be and you'll be golden. And she basically just almost like with one, with the exception of one slight slip up that she makes, she basically follows this to the letter. I do think this game does a dick move by you break open the lockers to get the water, and then the water butts are put on top of the lockers. Even in video games, that is a stretch for logic, because why? I mean, I know Mario, you punch a block from underneath and the power-up comes out the top, but this is a locker with a door. Oh yeah, and you're breaking that door open to make it magically appear on top of that locker. Mid-tier game, Luke. Mid-tier game. It was a, it's a time-wasting thing, isn't it? Because the, you have to get out of a room before the temperature gauge gets too high. So it's just a way to kind of... Because you then have to do the animation of climbing up on top of the locker to get on there as well. So it's a bit of time-wasting mechanics. But you're right, dick move. And Dominic asked a question about the aiming of the hose. How do you move it up and down? And Rick's there to say... Well, that's absolutely automatic. It's a bit like real life. It will rise and lower when you least expect it. <laughs> okay. Quality gag. Quality gag. Uh, Catalina clears the first room in about 1 minute 15, so she will need to get her skates on if she's going to get through the other two. And I think this is where I slightly lost the challenge somewhat, because they tell us that there's three rooms that she has to clear. But really, it's just two rooms that she has to clear, and one which has got some like bonus items to pick up, and you need to do that room to unlock. But you don't really need to go in there and like put any fires out. You just go into the room, pick up the power-ups, and then leave. You do need to decimate a French-made robot. That is kind of part of it, because otherwise, I suppose, maybe if you didn't, that French-made robot might also start a fire. Yeah, but when she clears the second, when she clears the third room, I was like, oh my god, she's only done the second room, she's got like five seconds left. But no, I, I, I thought it, it was slightly a, a bad story told in terms of the amount of room she needs to get through. It was also a really weird level structure, because First room, lots of robot, lots of fire. Second room, no fire, single robot, junction box. Third room, two robots, big one big fire. I would have flipped, if I was the game designer, I'd have flipped those two rooms around because two robots, one big fire, that would have been a good general introduction to the game. Then French-made robot, fine, junction box. But then, oh, the real meat of this, the final part of this level is the five, six robots, multiple fires need to top up your water partway through. Yeah, I think it sort of is missing something. Um, but she just does it like pretty much with no issues whatsoever. The only mistake she makes is when she leaves the second, when she leaves the first room, she goes to the wrong door, which actually is the door for room three, but you need to do room two first, which is where you hit the junction box to unlock room three. So she kind of goes in a slightly wrong direction, but then figures it out pretty quickly. And it comes down to a pretty close time as well, because she's got 40 seconds left to put out that final fire and she clears it. 
13 seconds are left on the clock. All she needs to do is run out the door, and she does that with five seconds left on the clock. So with that mistake, it comes down to the wire. Without that, she probably still would have been eight, nine seconds uh, time, so it still would have been pretty close. Oh, absolutely. She did have a few aiming problems with her hose. I mean, if you... you know, if you haven't spent a lot of your life with a hose, you're going to struggle to aim it initially. So that's entirely understandable. One of the things I loved in this challenge is when they do cut to Catalina playing, the look of fierce concentration. She isn't. She is taking this very seriously. She is. She is following a route. She is following being coached earlier in the day. But she is like, no, I'm going to fucking win this. I'm yeah, beat this bastard challenge. Those robots, Luke. Those robots are icky. She is so close to sticking out her tongue. The concentration is that hard. That was all very exciting uh, because I thought you had plenty of time that you were going to do, but then it kind of it stumbled a bit towards the end. I can't remember. Just I was toying. too excited. Yeah. Just toying. I was, yeah. And uh, the robot guys at the start, there was, did not seem to be a problem with them. They were all right, weren't they? No, they were a bit icky, really. They didn't uh-huh. like me very much. You know, getting, getting, running away, and it was kind of bit of time wasting there. Handling that extremely large hose, was was that was that, that a problem? That was the most exciting part actually, mm. yeah. I really like that she basically, she stands up, she was so focused on winning this challenge, she wasn't even paying attention to what was actually happening, it was just following the route that she was given. Because Dominic says like, oh you know, how did you find it, did you get a big step towards the end? And she goes like, honestly I don't remember. Like this, this was a, a she blacked out almost and just went into this games playing sphere of concentration to win this challenge. And you know, she did confirm she found the giant hose the most exciting part. But can she top the innuendo of earlier? Dominic offers, "Hey, look, you tried to out out innuendo me. Here's your chance. Try it a second time." Oh, I slid down a fireman's pole the other day. Yes, slid down a fireman's pole. I don't know. Michelle. Boom. Nailed it. She deserves the golden joystick just for that. She gets uh, the and on that bombshell treatment. Uh, it's excellent stuff. She's very much game for it. And I think she's a really good laugh on the show. Her like cackling laughter from Rick Henderson's uh, hose gag earlier was really delightful. Uh, the challenge is like it's it's a very early Games Master challenge. But I also appreciate those. Not every challenge needs to be like, you know, the Lost World. We've had a lot of gimmick celebrity challenges this series. And hey, guess what? We've got one more next week. Yeah. Pretty infamous, that one. But this one is a traditional Games Master challenge. And there is a degree of skill required. And while she may have been coached into finishing that level, it doesn't matter. She nope. still did it. Oh, yeah. I don't think coaching is the, isn't a bad thing at all. But Dom is now going to attempt to cop off with her. And you can see that she finds that very funny if you listen to her in the background. And while he does that, we're going to go back to the Lost World Challenge and check in with Martin Mathers. Basically, it's not been going too well. They've been playing a bit like the England cricket team. They're both down to two lives. They've lost two now. Let's see how it went. Let's go back to the replay. Starts off here in stage two, chapter one. They started picking off the man. Basically, they did a good job rescuing him. He threw them a couple of things. That was a good thing. But then Oliver lost it. He totally sidetracked. He was going to the right. He had the shotgun. He should have picked him off. He had infinite ammo. He should have done it. And then Tammy did exactly the same as she got now by Velociraptor. That was not good news for them. Which is basically Martin Mathers running these kids down for being stupid and idiots for losing lives. Look at these mistakes that they make. And basically plots all the mistakes that they made. Not paying attention. Not doing your due diligence. You had 20 seconds left on that gun and you wasted it. Idiot. He is like one step removed from being plank, plank, 
plank. Luke, he compares them to the English cricket team, which the fact he does that, I don't know what that means at that point in cricketing history, but I don't think it's good. No, no, I don't think he says it as a positive thing. And he particularly singles out Oliver for just going shoddy teamwork. You didn't have your partner's back. What were you thinking? You keep getting distracted. But the amount of times he says distracted, distracted for, for losing his lives because they cleared the Raptors, but then Oliver got distracted and he missed one of them. And Ryan's like, and you shouldn't have done. You had infinite ammo at that point. You should not have missed that one. Anyway, before he gets too outraged, Dom skids up with some funky Looney Tune sound effects, clearly from one of his record collection he's been sharing with the girl Fridays of an evening. And we rejoin the action as they attempt to zip line towards the end of the level and martin does make the actual very sensible observation something we've discussed before is finger fatigue yes absolutely i, I like this bringing up the fact that you'll be tired now and martin then brings back his own experiences from games Pass, being like oh yeah like when i did the virtual cop challenge in series five i was also tired by this stage and they get into a really really good part of the challenge it's really tense there's everything to play for but we've got to wait for that until after today's reviews. Do you find yourself looking jealously at people with decent gaming machines? Then you must be a Saturn owner. Don't worry though, you've now got your very own Final Fantasy VII in the shape of Panzer Dragoon Saga. Panzer Dragoon RPG is an exceptionally good game. Alright, it's not Final Fantasy VII. Alright, it's not Zelda. But fair play, it's a good attempt all round. Yeah, the original was one of the most cinematic games ever to grace the Saturn. And it was only a matter of time before somebody came up with an adventure version. And this is really rather good. Panzer Dragoon RPG employs a classic Japanese RPG device, which basically means your character knows nothing about himself, his history, or his powers at the beginning of the story. The cutscenes are just so impressive and so emotive that um, you can't help but sit there and be instantly addicted and amazed. Even though it's something that the Japanese have a reputation for, it's difficult to tell a story well on a computer. This is done brilliantly. The cutscenes blend seamlessly with the action, and you really do feel very involved. So now, if you've got a Saturn right now, I mean, there aren't very many games out there to choose from. You might have steep slope sliders, which is all right. You might have this, that, or the other. The only game worth actually buying at the moment, in my opinion, would be Pandora Dragoon RPG. No two ways about it. I've, I've spoken a bit before about the show about how I got Panzer Dragon Saga dirt cheap for my Sega Saturn. Um, it's still there. It's, it's, it's in the, the, the spare room. Uh, I got it for one ninety nine. Buy one, get one free. Um, and it's a, a pretty, uh, it's a bit, it's a big achievement of mine. I did cheat the system somewhat when I was working for GameStation. Um, and I, I've only played it a little bit. Like I actually have not played Panzer Dragon Saga a lot or um, Panzer Dragon RPG as they refer to it here because they, they, you know, clearly got the import copy. But I like that this is here in this review section because this is about that the Saturn hasn't got many good games. The Saturn definitely doesn't have a good RPG, whereas like Final Fantasy VII is tearing up the world at the moment. So if you have been staring longingly at other people's consoles, finally you might have an RPG that you can hang your hat on to be like, look, it's not as good as Final Fantasy VII, but it's it's 87% good, and that's a strong score. And also, it's definitely worth more nowadays than a copy of Final Fantasy VII on the PlayStation, because even at the cheap end, this is over 300 quid. Yeah, I mean, when I got it, it was probably like worth 150, 160 notes at that point, because that would have been 2006. 2006 I picked it up? Maybe 2000, yeah, it would have been 2006 I probably picked it up. 
Um, so, I mean, if, if anyone hasn't heard the story before, game the way the game station used to work when secondhand games is, you scan a game and it tells you what your uh, trade price is or what your buy price is. And you scan a game. If it doesn't come up, that means that the code is not recognized in the system. That means it's 99p to sell, which means it's, uh, I think it was 50p trade, 40p buy. So we would buy it off you for 40p or you can trade it in for 50p. And then we would sell it for... Um, 199 buy one get one free um on all retro games so this came in someone just cleared out their loft they scanned it in and we we're like doesn't scan that's the way that it works so i had to we had to trade it in she traded it in for 50p and i bought it for 199 buy one get one free and exactly how much were you skipping your way out of work that day so the the rule of thumb that we had in the in in um, amongst our team was if you were the person who was doing the trading in if you were the person who was running the till you get first dibs so if someone brought in oh i've just cleared out the loft here's a load of retro stuff that i'm just looking to flog off um if you're the person behind the till, you get first dibs on anything that comes in and then people can claim afterwards. I was pretty giddy with excitement when Panzer Dragon Saga came in because it was all four discs as well. Because one of the things you find with Panzer Dragon Saga on the secondhand market is that it's sometimes missing its first disc because a Sega Saturn magazine came out with the first disc as a giveaway. So some people often have lost their first disc and just replaced it with a demo disc or have bought it with just the three discs the next three discs that you need and just put the demo disc in so this is actually a complete one which i think it means it is worth a bit more money uh but yes i was very excited when it came in and that it didn't scan because if we if it had scanned we'd have sold it for 150 notes on the review itself rob and richard are very positive on this game and deservedly so it is a benchmark title for the saturn certainly in this late stage in the game it is a very good game in its own right i would it is Hell, it is stood there next to Zelda and Final Fantasy VII, which is unfair because it is doing its own thing, but it's Sega's equivalent. It's all they've got at that point. And the reason why copies of it, particularly PAL copies of it, are so expensive nowadays is because the Saturn was already done. Like, not many copies of it shipped over here at all, which is a shame because it is a good game. The cinematics look great. The gameplay structure is great. It's a good game overall. It deserved more eyes on it it had a very troubled production though like you go and you read the history of this game and you compare it to the first panzer dragoon and the second one which was actually being produced at the same time as this one the development was in parallel and the pressure on the dev team for panzer dragoon saga was immense to the point where unfortunately two of the development team died during production one of whom committed suicide the other of which was a car accident, but was a person that was under a lot of stress, was not sleeping, was working incredible crunch hours. So with that knowledge to go back and play it now, it is, it's a, it's a weird feeling, very weird feeling. I, I didn't really know a lot of the development of the game until I was looking it up for, for this podcast. And yeah, like I, I don't, I've never really had like an inkling or a, a hankling to, a hankering to go back and play Panzer Dragoon Saga mostly because i didn't grow up with it i don't really have any nostalgic attachment to it other than the fact that you know i've got a fun story about picking it up while working at game station in the in the early 2000s so i've i've never really had the oh i need to go back and play that but i think i you know if i if i did ever boot up my sat and i probably would like you know give it a whirl and maybe i'll get sucked into it if i had a lot of time on my hands but i don't really have a lot of time on my hands, so i can't i what i like about this review is just the the comparisons made to final fantasy 7 and it's it's our last Sega Saturn review of the series, 
So it's nice that we can end our Sega Saturn time with Games Master on a high, as opposed to it being, here's another reason you were wrong to buy a Sega Saturn. Yeah, and also, just of note, I just uh, checked a few more details. That copy of Saga This You Own, the PAL copy, it's one of about a thousand. Is it really? Yeah, they made about 20,000 North American copies, and for Europe... They only produced around a thousand copies. Bloody hell. Tell you what, you need a conservatory in a few years' time. There's your starter kit there, mate. Well, not only that, but so a bit of a behind the scenes story for you. I just recently launched a new YouTube channel uh, looking at video game movies. And I do a video uh, coming up soon about the unmade Metroid movie in the early 2000s, funny enough, when I was buying Pan's Dragon Saga for $1.99, buy one, get one free. Um, and we hired some props from a prop master so we've got like a nares and a tv and this and the other if you've seen the first episode or the first two episodes by the time this episode comes out you'll cut and see what i'm talking about uh but they didn't have a copy of metroid for us to play for the for the visuals and we were like okay i mean do you know anyone who's got a copy and he said i mean can call some collectors but they'll never let it out of their sights like it's it's absolutely they'll never let you have it and he called around and he came back and he was like yep thought as much they have got it but they do not want to lend it out to anyone because it's quite rare now it's quite it's quite quite a bit of money we're like okay that's a shame we ended up just filming me playing super metroid on the switch and just you know did it that way instead i was rooting around my parents barn looking for my old game boy very recently which you'll have heard about me talking about on uh this the most recent uh under console nation and while digging around I found an unboxed copy of Metroid. I didn't even know I owned it. I had no idea I had a copy of Metroid for the NES. But it's there and it's in my parents' barn, so I brought that home as well. But I was like, oh, that's not too bad. I had a look on eBay. Yeah, unboxed PAL copy, 300 quid. So so with that and my Pandragon Saga, I'm on a really good starter now for that conservatory. There is one last note on Panzer Dragoon Saga more on its legacy which is that shortly down the line we've got the Dreamcast and Dreamcast had its own kind of like significant RPG Shenmue and the producer Yu Suzuki asked for a meeting with the developers of Panzer Dragoon to basically go right I'm making a big ass RPG for the next console where did you go wrong (laughs) so I cannot make those mistakes so i cannot make those mistakes and in fairness they weren't entirely sure because it is a good game and one of the only things they could come up with which was actually echoed by one of the localizers was that maybe the post-apocalyptic setting which was the polar opposite of final fantasy's lust industrial era settings for final fantasy 7 it just alienated players it was a bit too barren a bit too desolate there wasn't enough life to the world. But also, I think the biggest answer is they were producing a top-tier game for a console that was already on life support. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's almost, you're amazed they didn't just save it for the Dreamcast. Maybe they thought this would be the last hurrah for the Saturn. And it kind of was. Postal on the PC is one of a number of recent games that deliberately sets out simply to shock. It's a very childish thing to do and something we at Games Master would never consider. Okay, so the very thin plot here is basically you you wake up in the morning one day and the whole entire town is trying to kill you. Um, So what do you do? You uh, go postal, which apparently is to lose your mind, pick up a shotgun and run around killing things. The gameplay is actually quite engrossing in the sense you do actually feel like you're trapped in this town with people trying to kill you on all sides. It's very violent, but at least it's convincing. At the moment, there's raging controversy about the issues of censorship and 
the nature and content of video games out there. There's stuff happening in Parliament at the moment being discussed. And what do they do? They bring out Postal, possibly one of the sickest and brutal games that I have ever actually come across. Having said that, the one thing it has got going for it is it's actually addictive and playable. There's no denying that Postal is a very playable game, but unfortunately it's entirely been made on the assumption that all PC gamers are antisocial, obnoxious little twerps who just want to kill people. Well, are you? So, Postal. Um... I, I did play the game uh, because, of course, I did. You know, it's it, it's the late '90s. Uh, it's extreme and it's controversial and it's it's Carmageddon and all this sort of jazz, right? So I I did play this game. I don't have a lot of memories of playing it, but I just I remember playing it at a friend's house or a, you know my a friend of my brother's household, so older kids. But like the thing with Postal is more, I I think it is just stood the test of time because of the the controversy surrounding the game um some of which has been removed from like remakes of it and things like that i think it is a game that its reputation has lasted longer than memories of the game itself postal is the perfect example of what if mortal Kombat had just gone yeah controversy that's all we're going to do with our games we're not going to attempt to develop the gameplay games here at e3 that it takes a special one to sort of jump out of the crowd and catch your attention what one has it is a big hit here, but it is not a big hit with the post office. The wall poster of the big E3 computer game show in Atlanta bears the unmistakable image of an AK-47 rifle. And it asks, what went wrong? For some, the answer might be the game itself. It is called Postal, a software offering already being hailed as a hit even before its scheduled September release. To anyone unfamiliar with computer software games, the blood and the mayhem of Postal could be a shock. But to the software programmers who make up much of this audience, the violence is appealing. Uh, just something about being able to uh, you know, take your friend, blow his sight off. It's mass mayhem. I get under a lot of stress at work, and it's just kind of nice to go home and just get it out that way, and then, then I'm okay for the rest of the night. Because if you look at how Postal grew, because there were three sequels to this game controversy became their their marking point and as i'm sure you are more than well aware and as i'm sure you will discuss more in future there was a movie and lo and behold who was the movie director that picked it up yeah uwe ball uh made that postal movie um and as, as you can probably imagine it's not very good it starts with a 9-11 joke and it goes downhill from there yeah not not a good no, i'd is it his worst one? Oof. It's certainly the worst taste. The, yeah. It's certainly oh, yeah. the one made in the worst taste. Yeah. But I I don't know. I still think that first House of the Dead. Which actually incorporates like video game footage into it is is quite ropey. Oh, it's it's so ropey. But at this point, this game isn't even a first person shooter. This is an isometric top-down shooter. It's weird. It's a very 16-bit style game. It looks like an Amiga like, game. At, yeah. At, the, at this point, the only games that are really doing this kind of top-down, two-thirds isometric, however you want to see it, kind of like that, up into the side angle thing. Because I don't look at this as a true isometric, because isometric to me is a very certain angle. But anyway, this is kind of the territory of this and of Diablo and stuff like that. But this game is just gratuitous. I played it. I remember playing it. I remember having a hooky copy for the PC. I don't think I completed it. I think I got bored with it because while it is gratuitous, whilst it is very offensive, it's also quite repetitive to me. 
Yeah, it's it reminds me a little bit of, and this is a future PC title that we're not that far away from. Uh, a basically a command and conquer clone called Hooligans, where you are football hooligans going and smashing up, you know, rival cities, pubs, and sending or going to European cities and, and smashing up the streets there and stuff. And it's basically command and conquer, but with football hooligans. It reminds me a lot of that, which is just as you mentioned earlier. It's controversy for the sake of controversy. And with every subsequent game that came out for Postal, it was just like, well, what can we push here? What can we push here? I, when they, they did a remake of it um, sort of 10 or so years ago, and they removed some of these sort of more school shooting aspects out of it because that's quite a, a touchy subject in America now, um, quite rightly so. So well, I think at least they had the decency to do that. Um, but it's not a game that I think... I would recommend to anyone. Although, if you did want to get it, you can buy it now for the Nintendo Switch, which is such weird. a weird thing. It's like when Manhunt came out for the Wii, and it came out for no other consoles, like Manhunt Two. It was a Wii exclusive. What a weird, what a weird time. But um, I I find this review fascinating because the pair of them are talk. You know, they they're kind of torn on it a little bit. They're both they're very open. This is controversy for the sake of controversy. There's so much going on about censorship in video games. The governments are getting involved about censorship in video games. It was a big topic in 93, 94 with Mortal Kombat and Night Trap and all that sort of stuff, which we've covered in our own timeline. It's only getting more controversial now. And then you release a game like this. But they also can't drag themselves away from the fact that eh, it's not a bad game, though. It's actually quite addictive. The gameplay is quite fun. Like it's, you will find yourself having a, a good time playing with it. It's a really like they they have they have to tread this very fine line when talking about it. So it gets eighty five percent, which is way higher than I thought it was going to get. I thought they might drag this through the coals because it's controversy for the sake of controversy, and even Games Master is above it. I do not feel any particular desire to go back and play this, even though, as I mentioned, it is available on the Switch. Also, I believe still available for the PlayStation, PS Five, PS Four. It was released digitally, and also, Luke, guess what? What's that? A version was released for the Sega Dreamcast last year. Huh? Licensed as well. Independent publisher Wave Game Studios announced a port of the game for the Sega Dreamcast and it was released June last year and officially licensed by Running With Scissors, the developers behind it, who had actually released the game's source code to open source years previously. So that is how the actual Dreamcast port came about because they've got the source code. They can port it to any machine that could run it. Mm. I imagine an Apple Watch could run it if they could get Apple to pass it. Okay, disaster has struck during that piece of finely crafted television sweet meal there. Tammy and Oliver have both lost a life. They've only got one life left each. They've still got to finish the game before the end of the show. And they're halfway through the big final boss. Certainly we don't get a replay of the kids losing their penultimate lives but it does lead us into some very dramatic scenes here as we, as we end our, our lost world challenge because they've only got one life left each as they fight off the t-rex i'm not quite sure whether or not like they if either of them die the challenge is over they sort of half say i think martin even says at one point if one of them dies then that's it the challenge is over as opposed to both of them needing to die before the challenge to be over oh i think storytelling it would have been better if both of them had to die. That's what I would say. Because then you've got last man standing vibes. And that's just really, really good dramatic tension. Whereas actually what you get if one of them dies, they're immediately taking the blame. Or the other person's taking the blame for not having their back, rather than actually giving us any chance of a um a Hail Mary ending. But oh the tension in this 
final boss fight against the T-Rex is so there because the T-Rex is eating people and you can't save them, but they do bring his health back. And not only that, but the game, and I believe the game to deliberately do this, this isn't something they could have prevented. The T-Rex is lunging forward and chomping on them and bringing them up. So you have to stop what you're doing. You have to start hammering that button. You start having to try and save your partner. And it happens to both of them multiple times throughout this final level. And it's really just ramping the tension up and up. If they had lost this challenge at this point, spoilers, they win. But if they had lost the challenge at this point, I would have been genuinely upset. Yeah, gutted for them. Really, really gutted for them. But what you find is that like Oliver gets caught, but gets saved. Tammy gets caught, but gets saved. Oliver gets caught, but gets saved. Tammy gets caught, but gets saved. And then finally, you the T-Rex runs away and storms at them. And Martin says, you can't miss this target. It's a massive target on the mouth. One shot, click, boom. The dinosaur goes down. They win the challenge. And it's a really good... You're right, the tension is really palpable in the, the final part of this because they keep getting caught and they keep getting saved. And it's like, and they've got one life left each. It really is do or die at this point. And I love how much like this, this final boss is so cinematic because the T-Rex being down to that last sliver and then running away, it's the one last scare in a horror movie. It's the smile, you son of a bitch, in Jaws. It's that moment of going, you've got this, you know, but we're going to give you that Hollywood ending of the monster's going to make one last run and you can't miss, but we're going to recreate that Hollywood magic. Yeah. And it even like just watching someone play it, it translates beautifully. Right, Tammy, first of all, we, we gave you four lives to complete that and you both had one life left. Were you worried at any point? Um, yeah, I think it was when um, <clears throat> we were on the motorbikes and the dinosaurs kept jumping out of the bushes. That was yeah. quite scary. Uh, now, Oliver, what about you at the end, that big Tyrannosaurus Rex? Things looked a bit hairy there. I uh, wasn't worried, really. It was fairly obvious where it was coming out from, so yeah. it was just pretty easy, really. Is, is there anything in life that worries you at all? No. No? Not really. My ever-expanding stomach? Because that worries me. Uh, no, because it's your problem, really. I, well, thank you very much. Tammy points out the part where they, they struggled a little bit, which is the motorbike sequence uh, that they we saw where they lost a couple of lives earlier in the game. But Oliver basically just says, nah, that's pretty easy. Pretty easy. Nothing worries me. I, I, you know, I'm an easygoing kid. Nothing, nothing to worry about. Just homework, and that's it. And Dom comes back with, what about my ever-expanding stomach? And Oliver's like, well, no, that's your problem, you fat Scottish git. That sounds like a you problem, He's not really, a me problem. really, dismissive, yeah. and it shuts Dom down. But that again goes back to that, like him being very uncomfortable within his own skin, reference that we, we did in the book in the, the, the Baywatch thing earlier. Harsh on yourself, you are, Dom. Um but Dom even said, like, that's one of the best examples of games playing he's ever seen on Games Master. I don't think I'd go that far, um, but it's, it's, it's impressive nonetheless. And sadly, I think for the children, they get one joystick between the two of them. Which, given the height difference between them, is kind of funny, because Tammy is not having to reach very high. Oliver is almost on tiptoes. But it's kind of adorable. Who knows? Maybe they got a second joystick afterwards. There was one prop. There was only one prop one on the set. Or they could only risk bringing one out to the sand because, you know, unsteady underfoot. OK, uh, that's it then uh, for today. Only two more shows to go. Two more weeks then until the TV listings pages become emptier than a fat, smelly bloke's bed. Ta-da. So, Ash, that's it. Next week's episode is our final 
proper episode. Not only is this the penultimate traditional episode, but he's run out of sound effect records or run out of time for the sound effect record gag. So there you go, Ash, our penultimate episode of Games Master, uh, Series 7, Episode 8. What did you make of it? Really, really solid episode. Everything in this episode worked. The episode-long challenge was nicely structured, didn't overexpose the game, didn't underexpose the game. I actually think the game this week certainly does a lot better than the game we get next week, where I could have certainly done with seeing more of the challenge. The celebrity challenge was a lot of fun. Some decent game-playing fundamentals on display there. The news was news, and look, there is nothing actually groundbreaking in the news, but it was fun because it was like, oh yeah, Boat shows and Titanic and Nigel Mansell and Stringfellow. Like, I would have liked to have seen more actual groundbreaking news, but at the same time, I enjoyed talking about it. The boat shows, because it's just, yeah, we, we had a good bit of a giggle about that. And same with talking about Kirk's game. As you mentioned, they then go on a major promotional bend with it, with the magazine and everything like that. I can't really think of much I would have done different in this episode. I know sometimes we talk about how. You know, we'd restructure an episode, we'd swap challenges between episodes. And I can't think that with this one because the episode long challenge was nicely paced with some good tension at the end. The celebrity challenge, nicely paced, good bit of tension at the end. The reviews highlighting a game that is a fondly remembered but sadly underperforming classic and a game that deliberately courted controversy and is still remembered to this day but not necessarily for the best reasons. I don't know that it's a home run, but it's definitely a safe hit in three bases. It's also worth noting as well, Postal is our last review, because there's no reviews next week. So the, no. the last game we get reviewed on Games Master is Postal. You know, a very controversial game, and kind of amazing as well, that like the final review gets a Saturn game. That's kind of cool in a way, I suppose. I've just thought one thing I would change. I'd have flipped the order of the reviews for you. Postal first, end with the Sega Saturn game. Yeah. End with a hope of, end with a note of hope. That's a good point, yeah. I I think we needed this episode. I think the last few episodes we've had where we've sort of been that low 80s mark has sort of been a little bit of Series 7 fatigue, a little bit of too wacky, a little bit too silly, a little bit too dom and mates, a little bit too up their own arseholes. But I think they got it with this one. This felt like the Series 6 Games Master that we that we really, really liked. A great show-long challenge, a fun celebrity challenge who is in with Dom's innuendos and is enjoying themselves while doing it. And, you know, some good reviews, odd bit of news, but that, that is what it is. But, like, games playing-wise, I felt like we needed this episode. And I appreciate that from, from what it gave us. So what are you thinking score-wise? <sighs> There's part of me that thinks this is in the 90s, but it doesn't feel like a 90 episode. Like next week's does, next week's does, but this one doesn't. This feels more like the, the straight DeLorean territory. Yeah, I was going to give it 87 to match it with Panzer Dragoon Saga. But actually, I'm thinking, no, it deserves the DeLorean. It deserves the 88. This is a solid episode and a good episode for any series. I agree. You could put this you could put this in any of the latter series of the Dominate era and it would just be a quality fun 
watch. But that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you all so much for listening. You all rule. If you would like to follow us on social media, we are available on Twitter at underconsolepod, on Instagram at under.console, and you can send us an email with your Series 7 feedback to feedback at underconsultation.com. And if you want to chat with us in real time, chat with other listeners, other fans of gaming, modern and old, pop culture of all eras, you can do so over on our Discord, details of which can be found in the show notes and on social media. And if you want to support this podcast monetarily, you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash under pod, where you'll get access to UCP Extra and our monthly community show, Under Console Nation. At the £5 level, you'll get next week's episode one week early and ad-free, but at the £10 level, as you get a little bit extra, what do you get? At the £10 level, you get our Patreon supporters pack, the contents of which is currently unknown because we've run out of mugs and I'm still trying to source a replacement batch of glittery golden joystick waggler mugs. But you know what? Don't worry, because some people stand in the darkness, afraid to step into the light. Some people need to help somebody when the edge of surrender's in sight. But don't you worry, it's going to be all right, because I'm always ready to send a Patreon supporter pack to you. And a shout out to those £10 backers, Adam D, Adam Warrington, Alexis, Andrew Cummings, Andrew Greenwood, Andy Smith, Arcadia Wild Bill, Chris Price, Chrissy Two Sticks, Colin, David Palmer, David White, Gordon Aiken, Gordon Brands, Gordon Dempster, Harriet Mangagirl, I am Cheadle, Ian Roberts, Ian Williams, Jamie Smith, Joe McGonagall, Joe Mitchell, Kevin, Kylie, Lawrence, Liam Link, Mark, Matty Boo, Misha, Nick, Phil, Retro Fun for Everyone, Reese, Richard, Sean, Selena, Simon, Super Sexy Dave Fisher, The Amazing Cliff, Tom Dylan McEvoy, Tom S, William Cottingham, Xanderthal, and Zach. We will see you in seven days' time for the final traditional episode of Games Master. It's going to be an emotional one, everyone. Take care. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 